Our ideal is that if Jason and I left the building for a year, the building would still stand when we came back. So we tried explicitly to design an organization that does not need a lot of management. We build systems where we radiate information rather than pull it. We don't have the daily meeting. Occasionally there's like, oh, here's a little phase. For example, we're just about to launch. Let's check in. That's the exception. And the norm is that none of that exists and that I learn about what the organization is doing by reading what people report into Basecamp, where everyone can read it. Everyone at Basecamp answers two questions on a weekly basis. They answer on Monday morning, what are you going to work on this week? And then they answer at least two times a week, and some people do it every day, what have you worked on today? But if we don't do that, I still need confidence that we're heading in a direction I think is a good direction. I still need confidence that we're going to ship the things that we ship on our scale of urgency. And I can only get that if you tell me what the fuck you're doing. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, our episode is with David Heinemeyer Hansen, also better known as DHH. Nolan, you had prior commitments for this episode. So Colleen, once again, uh, our friend and best friend on the show, um, helped me interview David. And it was, it was very, very, very insightful, as we expected. So DHH was the creator of Ruby on Rails language, also the co-founder of 37 Signals, which includes Basecamp. He went through it all with us. We covered kind of all corners of the house. And I just loved how human he was. That was my, honestly, that was my biggest takeaway. And and I think he said on the show, Nolan, he said, you know, I, I do a lot of tech podcasts and I really appreciated getting into the human side of things um, and peeling that back. Yeah. So I'm a huge DHH fanboy, which will be no surprise to anybody. This was devastating for me to miss this episode, but I loved the conversations that you and Colleen had with him. I felt like he gets to a level of authenticity that most people can't because of how successful he's been. Him and Jason, the CEO of 37 Signals, which by the way, it's not only Basecamp, it's also Hay and a number of other companies. They've written like five books on culture. I mean, these guys think really deeply about it. I love the questions that get into the way that they published uh, their HR handbook. I love the stuff around politics at work. They are on the bleeding edge of pushing the envelope as it relates to culture. And I think our audience is going to learn a ton. And I also think it's going to get them to think a little bit differently about how to design culture at their own offices. For sure. We, we did talk about that on the show about just you know, people that don't necessarily think like you. And we promised Spice on this show. We promised opinions of all kinds, whether you agree or don't. And he delivered. And we also talked about the ability to engage with folks, especially if you don't agree and seek to understand and go a little deeper with those people. And he's a, he's a good human. I mean, we, we talked about, you know, his grudge against VCs. We talked about how he wants to make code sing, which I really enjoyed. We talked about his perceptions of HR and what that looks like. And we talked about politics at work. And we covered a lot of ground in a little over one hour. And I appreciated it. So, yeah. 
I think the biggest takeaway for the audience on this one is you're going to hear new ideas that you may not initially agree with, but the thought process behind the ideas will definitely make you think. And that's why I love this episode. And I think that's why you guys are going to love it too. So please like subscribe and share. And without further ado, here's DHH. David, thank you for joining us. So great to have you on the show today. And of course, Colleen co-hosting with me today in Nolan's absence, which she's pretty much part of the team here anyway now. David Heinmeier Hansen, better known as DHH. Can't wait to cover a lot of ground with you today. You are one of the more spicy speakers I've listened to and read, and I, we love that here. It's kind of like a must-have. So would love to kick it off with just your history on Ruby's on Rails. I'm kind of a secret fangirl on that. I was at GitHub. That was our choice. I almost learned a few lines of code myself, and they loved it, and I I'd, I'd just love to hear how that happened, how you decided to create that, and what that was like. Yeah, no, it's a great story. I mean, I started developing for the web back in 95, which was all HTML. I didn't really know how to program properly. I tried to learn how to program a few times, and I find it awfully hard to figure it out. So I just started working with the web, and I really liked the internet. I really loved the freedom. You didn't have to have ask anyone for permission. You could just put stuff out there, and if someone knew your address, they could see it. It just felt like such a magical moment. And then a few years later, I did learn how to program as part of another project. I learned how to do PHP, and it was very functional. I learned it because I wanted the outcome. I wanted to have a program, therefore I must program. It was not like, oh, I love programming. Let me, let me do that. And I spent a few years doing programming as a tool. And then um, Jason Fried and I started working on Basecamp together with the two other people we had at 37 Signals at the time in 2003. And it was the first project, major project, in quite a while where I did not have a client. I did not have anyone saying, you have to use PHP, you have to use this, you have to use that. We had free range, and I took it upon myself to, to mean that I had free range, and I was just going to tell Jason what we were going to use. I wasn't going to ask him. And at the time, I'd been reading Martin Fowler and Dave Thomas and some of these other programmers who were writing at the time about Ruby in this kind of abstract way. Hey, I'm going to explain a programming concept to you. I'm going to use Ruby because it almost looks like pseudocode. You'll be able to follow along even if you've never written a line of Ruby code. And I thought, this really looks like an interesting programming language. Here are these titans of the industry. They really seem to enjoy it. I should give it a try. So I gave it a try for the development of Basecamp. I said to myself, Do you know what? Let me give it two weeks. If in two weeks I can sort of kind of get Hello World up on the screen and maybe talk to a database, I will have enough confidence that we can use it to build this system. And I think it... Barely even took a week before I was head over heels in love with Ruby. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I can use it. It was, OMG, my mind is blown. What even is this? Where has it been my whole life? I want to do this. So Ruby to me was really the inflection point of my career. It was basically learning that and going, oh, I want to be a programmer. This is what I want to do. I don't just want programs. I want to be a programmer. So I used Ruby to create Basecamp, uh, the project management tool that we're still selling to this day. It's coming up on its 20th anniversary in three days, 
February 5th, 2004 was when we introduced Basecamp to the world. And I had built all that with Ruby. And part of building that meant I had to build a bunch of tools because Ruby at the time was really not very widely used in the West. I had to build things to talk to the database and create HTML and all this other stuff. And it ended up being a whole little toolkit. And I thought, you know what? I have been such... Uh, a beneficiary of open source. We use the Apache web server. You, we use the MySQL database. We use now Ruby, the programming language. We use Linux to deploy on. Everything that we use is possible because I'm using open source. Of course, if I have something, it should be open source. So I took all that stuff, put it in the box, could not get the domain name rails.com but could get rubyonrails.com. So that's how it began to be called, rubyonrails.com. It's basically just can't get the domain. Put it out there, and I think uh, first release was fall of 2004. And here we are, almost 20 years later. I am still head over heels in love with Ruby. You still uh, use it. I write it. Ruby as much as I can. I'm still very intimately involved with the Rails development, and I use Ruby on Rails every day. And we just put out... a brand new product, uh, Campfire, under this new Once umbrella where you can install the software, which is also built with Ruby on Rails, which is just great. And of course, as you say, GitHub uses Ruby on Rails, Shopify uses Ruby on Rails, Twitter was started on it. A ton of really interesting tech on the internet was built with Ruby on Rails, which is just fun. I, I was just going to say, I finally get the dogmatic, passionate Ruby programmer now. Like, they just... <laughs> DA, if someone had explained this to me like 10 years ago when I was saying, I don't understand why they're so passionate and they're so forceful that we have to use Ruby mm -hmm. for everything. Um, I just needed someone with that level of excitement for, <laughs> for the tool. That probably would have explained it. Now, I mean... I, yeah, I kind of want to become a programmer now. Like, sure, this people stuff. And, and David, I heard you say on the podcast last week, you want your code to sing. Like that level of passion, what does that mean? And is that like common? Do all programmers, and do they want their code to sing? What does that mean to you? <laughs> I don't think all programmers think about programming in that way. I like the... I want to make it sing. And I really take that, though, from like a literal thing of I am a software writer. I'm not a software engineer. I have rejected the engineering label for the longest time. I know that's the industry standard, and people talk about hiring engineers. I don't hire engineers. I hire software writers. And I say that not because I don't like engineering. I mean, every now and then I do engineering. I sit down and very methodically measure things. But most of the time, what I do is writing, which is far more akin to someone writing prose, someone writing nonfiction, even fiction, even poetry. That's how far I'm willing to push it, that the best code that I I've personally written, it feels like it's poetic in its expression, with its dance, with its song, with the computer. It's not just about making the computer do a thing. It's about making the computer do a thing in like a graceful way, that we're having this soft, eloquent conversation with like this little chip made of sand, and we can make it do amazing things. I'm not in here to be like the ones and the zeros. I know it all boils down to that. That That's a level of abstraction I personally could never connect to, which is why I had such a hard time learning how to program in the late 80s and in the 90s, because a lot of programming was more low level than what I'm comfortable at. And it was why Ruby spoke to me so passionately when I discovered it, because this was a programming language explicitly. The creator of Ruby, uh, Matt's, has said this many times, I created Ruby um, to make happy programmers. 
Isn't that amazing? Like, you think of programming languages before Ruby would not talk in those terms. We're not like happy programmers. What are you wishy-washy? What even is this? How fast is it? How much memory does it use? Like, let's get some hard engineering terms on the table. And all that stuff is fine, and we have wonderful Rubyists who are really deep into that, and I appreciate them dearly. That is not what I do. That is not what I'm good at. I am good at the, the pros of code. I'm good at writing, and I like to think of what I do as writing first and foremost. And it's what's animated me so much to try to present Ruby on Rails as an option for people who would not normally think of themselves as programmers. This is one of the things I'm really proud about with the Ruby on Rails community. There's such a large contingency of the programmers who love Rails who didn't grow up to be programmers. They didn't even train to become programmers. They did not have a computer science degree from MIT. They might have done a million other things. We have people who were biologists, musicians, traders, all sorts of things. But the Ruby on Rails barrier of entry was so low that they could get in here and they could write Hello World in a little application. They could talk to a database and they could solve a problem that was important to do. And along the way, might just discover the joy of writing code the same way I did. And I can infect them with this kind of passion for the craft of writing code. And I think that's just, that's just nice. Like I just, I enjoy myself. Why am I still doing this? This is something I, I ask myself often. Hey, it's been 20 years. Do you know what? I could just retire. I could sit on Mojito Island somewhere, whatever, enjoy the sunset. Or I could also enjoy the sunset and then get back to the computer. And I get back to the computer because I just love writing code. I love having this conversation with the computer. I love creating stuff. And I now love just the act of it itself. And that was the real key difference for me. I don't just like the outputs. Lots of programmers like the output. There's nothing wrong with that. This is why we get paid so lavishly to do what we do is because the outputs are very valuable. But you can also enjoy the act itself. And if you can fall in love with the act, work is just easier. That That is so cool. You know, our guests are mostly, I mean, I'm sure there's some tech leaders out there, but they're mostly on the business side. And I don't know about you, but like 24 years of working with engineers, that just literally helped me understand what they're thinking, like the passion, the importance, like that was really cool. That was impactful for me. Hey everyone, we'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. There's a world where your CRM is powerful, easily configured and deeply intuitive. Atio makes that a reality. Atio is a radically new CRM built specifically for the new era of companies. It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structures, works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Atio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendar, lets you create powerful reports, and quickly builds Zapier-style automations. The next era of companies deserves more than a one-size-fits-all CRM with an outdated UX. Join OpenAI, Replicate, Eleven Labs, and more. Try Atio instantly at atio.com, that's A-T-T-I-O.com, and tell them Nolan and Kelly from HR Heretics sent you. I once worked with a CTO who used to tell me all the time, he'd say, code is easy, people are hard. And you have basically made an entirely separate, I think, impact on technology organizations on the people side based on what you've written. You and Jason. In fact, from my understanding of your history, you were writing even before Basecamp came out. Like you had a Substack, you had an audience, you're writing about companies and company building and those kinds of things. Tell me 
how you two have built that career of the people are hard and you two have been together, working together for a really long time, coming to this vision that you've needed to share with the world and really, in you know, you you sell books, but also most of it's been an open source sort of way around your people philosophies. How'd you develop it? How do you align on it? And then what inspires you to keep, you know, putting it out there? Jason and I were fortunate enough to have the same traumatic experience at the same time. We worked for VC-backed companies around the dot-com boom and bust. So we got a front row seat to the kind of technology companies that I think most people think of when they think of technology. They think of fast growth, VC-backed, um, millions of dollars right away, all that stuff. And I think we both just got exposed to it in a way that inoculated us against wanting to run a company like that, against hyper growth, against um, the way of building organizations, because both of us worked for bosses that we were so fortunate to have that sucked or sucked in our opinion. I have since developed more sympathy for them. Early on in my career, all I could see was the suckage. Now having yes. been a boss <laughs> for 20 years, I have more empathy than I did in the early days yeah. for Don't the hardship all. of that. Yeah. Don't we that's all, a, right? That's a, that's a verb. Don't we all? That's, and, by, that's, and by the way, just so we're all clear, I too, I was not working at one of those startups in the late 90s. I was working at a big behemoth evil empire. However, uh, I too can relate to the having worked at a venture-backed company and seeing this growth is everything and how dangerous that has been, right? Like, And thankfully, I then worked for CEOs who said profitability gives you freedom, and I learned a lot more lessons around that. But um, continue. I just want to put it out there yes. that you, yeah. you know, you are not alone. You're, we are with you <laughs> yes. on that journey. <laughs> and I'd like to I, just say that suckage is a verb now. That is real. Yes. We've all been. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think it was just, it was really helpful. And this is actually, it's funny whenever I have young founders come to me and like, Oh, or, or prospective founders, I want to start a company. First I asked, who have you worked for and have they sucked? If you've not worked for a bad manager, you're not ready. <laughs> Go back, work for someone who sucks, because you will learn the lessons in a way that you cannot teach. The, the sort of direct impact on your psyche that is possible when you work for someone who, in your opinion at the time, makes quote-unquote bad decisions, decisions you wouldn't have made, right? That was really what, in the late 90s, inspired me to think, you know what, I don't think I'm cut out to be an employee, and I just have too many disagreements. And if I am an employee and I disagree vehemently with whoever runs this company, do you know what? I'm going to lose. That's just the, that's just the score, right? I am going to lose. I'm not going to be able to, to, I have no power in that relationship. And that is as it should be. Do you know what? If you want all the power, if you want all the freedom, start your own damn company. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I did essentially, the second best thing is I joined another company where I could be part of that leadership and be part of setting the tone. And then I went, do you know what? I don't like what I've been through. I'm sure some of it is right for some reason, in some context, blah, blah, whatever. Let's review everything from first principle. Let's break it all the way. Why are we doing the things we're doing? Can we do them a different way? Then let's try some of those ways. And maybe they don't work, and we will go back to the traditional way of doing it. I have many stories about that. Uh, titles is one of them. For, for many years, we had this concept of cocktail titles. You can make up whatever title you want. You can be chief lizard wrangler of code at 37 Singles. That was like a phase. I don't know if any that of you— That sounds like GitHub. 
Kelly. There was, I think, GitHub had it too. I think there not, was a bunch of companies at a certain time who really thought it was funny. Not to, to name names, but I, I, I did know of a company that would ask candidates, what do you think you should make and why? And they would make that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a tremendously bad idea in retrospect. Um, so, I mean, I had that concept, for example. And that was something that came from first principle. Oh, titles are stupid. And then you learn a little more. You live a little longer. And you realize people change jobs. And actually, it's kind of helpful if we all have roughly the same title. So you can say, oh, I was a senior programmer at GitHub. Oh, OK. I have some mental idea of where you are. And that's going to help you slot in. So we changed our minds on a bunch of things. But we also held to a bunch of other things. One of the things, for example, was this notion of management. Um, how much management do you need in a company, for example, of our size? We're about 70, I don't know, two people right now or something about that. Um, and we tried different things, and I've come to the conclusion I don't like full-time managers when it comes to R&D. So we don't have those. Jason and I are not full-time managers. We spend a high proportion of our time in the nitty-gritty. I actually write code. He actually does um, design. We both do marketing. We do, both do writing. We both do all of these things. And it was one of those things that I think still to this day is is um, is weird. Like this is one of those things that doesn't transfer that well. We don't have like a whole cadre of engineering managers. We tried here and there and some extent, and we turned like, you know what? Not working for us. Moonlighting managers is one of those terms I've grown to to really like. That management is something you should almost be like forced to do because then you will do just enough and not to <laughs> and not more. That you will know when to stop and you won't just keep churning up new ideas, new initiatives that the people who are already overworked then have to consider and swallow just because you're like, what else should I spend my forty hours a week on? <laughs> I have to manage something at all times. Exactly. That is 100% the problem. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no. They, they, they have solved for this, though. Is this part of the managers of one? Because I love this that you write about. Yes. So this is what we've tried to do. We try to solve for this in the sense that managers of one is the ideal. It's not always true. And sometimes, especially junior people, they need direction and they need feedback. And they, all of that is true. But our ideal is that if Jason or I left the building for a year, the building would still stand when we came back. And it would have produced wonderful stuff because we should be optional. Like when we're here, we add value, hopefully, most of the time. Sometimes I'm sure we detract value too. But on net, we hopefully add value, but it's optional. And that should be true, in my opinion, of almost anyone in any organization. When you get these cluster points or these choke points, oh, there's an engineering manager who knows everything about whatever everyone is supposed to do. And that's the sole source of information. And they kind of maybe they end up hoarding it a little bit because like that's their little um, domain and that's how you get valuable. And even if you take, even if you take that out of the question, no malice here, just people trying to do a good job. I think you end up with organizations that are different than what we run at 37 Singles. And we try explicitly to design an organization that does not need a lot of management. We try to build systems where, for example, we radiate information rather than pull it. Like there's not a lot of stand-up meetings. In fact, there are no stand-up meetings at 37 Singles. We don't have a lot of standing meetings in general. We don't have the daily meeting. Occasionally there's like, oh, here's a little phase. For example, we're just about to launch Let's check in, very high bandwidth. Um, that's the exception. And the norm is that none of that exists. And that I learn about what the organization is doing by reading what people report into Basecamp, 
where everyone can read it. Everyone at Basecamp, for example, answers two questions on a weekly basis. They answer on Monday morning, what are you going to work on this week? And then they answer at least two times a week, and some people do it every day, what have you worked on today? Yeah. And I they love, just sort of put I it love in that. there. In your employee handbook, too, it's like in bold and in like underlined, this is required, which yeah. Colin, I, you know, that was a new to, thing. That we was talked a new thing. About I think that's a great a example. Like clarity of who the hell you are. Clarity up front yes. of how we yes. work, the decision's up yes. to you. Yeah. Um, this, and is, this is, Kelly and I are big on, on these words, clarity, context, consistency, yeah. like that's all you need. And what I've found is that all of those positive words are in opposition to preciousness. And this was one of the things that we actually had to beat out of our organization for a while. I think especially sort of... I don't know if I want to call it hippy-dippy, but you're going to call me hippy-dippy for a while in terms of sort of like, oh, let's all get along. Like everyone is great. Everyone's going to figure everything out. We don't need to tell anyone what to do. You could almost derive that from that spiel I just gave about management. I don't believe that at all anymore. Um, the clarity of like, do you know what? This is a job. I treat it as a job. That job has obligations not all of them are going to be your favorite things to do every day, but we need to do some of them for this whole thing to work. And at our company, we've decided, do you know what? We're not going to do a ton of meetings, but if we don't do that, I still need confidence that we're heading in a direction I think is a good direction. I still need confidence that we're going to ship the things that we ship on our scale of urgency. And I can only get that if you tell me what the fuck you're doing. Sorry, totally. I don't know if it's DHH, a swear. No, no, no. Um, we all use no, four letter words here. Yeah, we, right, we, we're yeah. fine. We fucking yeah. swear all the time. Yep. So <laughs> I, I love the handbook too. I loved it. I, I want to ask the spicy one because I noticed a couple of things in there around how you work that is literally the 180 of what a lot of former guests, prior guests have said on this show, which is we want to hire people that have don't care about work-life balance. We want to hire people that are workaholics and they're just killing themselves and blah, blah. And I read, we quote, we limit ourselves to a 40-hour work week 32 hours in the summer months. I guess it depends on where you live when that is. But tell me about that. Tell us about that. And does that work? Yeah. So this came straight out of uh, Jason and I's personal approach to work right from the get-go. We don't have an origin story of the 100 or 120-hour slaving it in the garage somewhere to build the business, risking everything, putting it all on the credit cards, the third mortgage, like all of these myth-making tools that some entrepreneurs enjoy to employ to burnish their reputation, right? We say like, no, we didn't risk shit. Like we had a consulting business that was paying the bills and we decided to build Basecamp as like a third or a fourth client. There was no financial risk and we worked normal hours doing so. And when we then went full-time on the Basecamp thing, we still wanted a life. Like, I, I really like programming. I really truly do, as you perhaps can tell from the previous conversation. I can't program every day, 12 hours a day. I don't actually really believe that almost anyone can. Um, I can program really intently for maybe five hours. If I get six out of the day, like that's an all-time Hall of Fame day for programming. Most of the rest of the time, do you know what happens around all the other stuff? And what I found is when I talk to most people who go like, yeah, I work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I go into like, yeah, okay, so what do you get done? They get a lot of the other stuff done. And we just went, what if we just didn't do those things? Like, what if we just didn't do all the meetings, for example? What if we didn't do all the powwows and the brain sessions and the... 
whatever it is that people do? What if we didn't send all the emails? What if we didn't? What if we didn't? That was the basic thing. What if we just took those 40 hours and we really made them count because they were limited? And I think this is one of the things I've come to appreciate so much, embracing constraints, going like, you know what? I have a fixed amount of time. It's even more true now. I have three kids. Do you know what? When it's dinner time, it's dinner time. Like, I don't, uh, what? Like, I'm going to come in two hours? How's that going to work? The food is going to be cold and the kids are going to be pissed. So I need to stop at like, whatever, five o'clock, because that's when it's over. And from the beginning, we had that that was a good thing. Constraints are actually blessings. Constraints in terms of time you allocate to the business, in terms of resources, money you have available, in terms of headcount you have available. The less you have, the more you have to make do. And to me, I find that to be the most intensely creative space is when I don't just have all the time, all the money, all the people I could wish for, when I have not enough time, not enough people, not enough money, right? That's when the creative solutions come out and that's where the really interesting trade-offs come out. So we had that instinct from the get-go and we stuck with it. And I think that comes from um, partly because we had no one to convince that like we were working really hard. We didn't take millions of dollars from people who were like, so are you, are you there on Saturday who were counting cars in the parking lot on a Sunday or whatever dumb shit the VCs do or at least pretend to do, right? Like that is really an indication that these are people working very, very hard. What are you even talking about, right? Um, this is one of the reasons I love that uh, Twitter account. I, call, I think it's called VC Brags. Um, they just highlight like all VCs talking about how amazingly hard they work. And you're like, what do you, you make like 10 decisions in 10 years. That's what you do. You cut 10 checks. Now, maybe you're diligent about those decisions, but oh, give me this bullshit that you're working 60, 70, 80 hour productively a week. This was the other thing I found. I cannot work productively like that. Literally, even if I wanted to, and I'm like, I don't care about my life. It's all about the business. I know. It doesn't, I don't get more productivity out of the 50th hour, the 60th hour, the 70th hour. I found I usually get negative productivity out of those hours. I make bad decisions, I write crappy code, and I then have to undo it on Monday. So I don't want to do that. Can I just like 40 hours is plenty? And I think the proof is in the pudding. We've been doing this for freaking 40 years. If you look at our history of contributions from open source to writing to business to applications to revenue to all of the metrics you can measure someone on i'm very confident we hold up pretty well and that we hold up far better than people who proclaim to work twice as hard as we do and it's because we embrace those constraints it's because i love to get eight and a half hours of sleep it's because i have hobbies it's because like not everything i think about 24 7 is business 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 or even programming 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 I, I, I love how you said eight and a half. Everyone tends to think in hour increments and it's just incomplete. There, there are other, right. other, other options. That's right. I love that. I have a spicy follow-up. So based on all of that, what do you say to all these companies, VCs, CEOs that want everyone back in the office? Do you see any merit to that? I do. And this is perhaps where it gets interesting because I am a huge supporter of remote work. You are never ever, 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 ever getting me back into an open office, ever. Maybe to visit one, fine. Sit down and do work, never gonna happen. My career took off the moment I got out of that hellhole of an environment. The moment I could shut my door and get five hours of uninterrupted time without someone yapping, without someone on the phone, without all the distractions of the open office, 
That's me. And this is why we literally wrote the book on remote working back in 2013, Remote Office Not Required, where we proclaimed all the wonderfulness of remote work, right? I believe that as strongly as I've ever done. Do you know what I also believe? I believe that humans come in all different shapes and sizes and varieties and brain configurations. And some brain configurations, either through pattern or DNA, just prefers to be around people. Some don't. I'm an introvert. Like, this is my second um, podcast of the day, and I had two other conversations because I jammed everything into Friday such that the rest <laughs> of the week I would see no people, right? Like, that's yeah. just me. That's what I like. <laughs> and you'll collapse um, after. You'll run away exactly. after. Exactly. I will collapse after this, but it'll be like, all right, great. I did a day. That was humans. That's fine. And then the rest of it, I don't want humans. Um, that's not everyone. And it's completely fine. Not only is it fine, it is a misnomer to believe that just because like all the programming friends you have are also introverts, that that's like, that's the world. Like two thirds, I think it is, or even three quarters of the world, they're extroverts on all the metrics. Do you get energy from being around other people or do they drain you? Most people say, I get energy. I have a, I have a son who like, if he spends even five minutes not around other people, he's like, so what are we doing? What are we doing? Can I, can I be around humans? Can I be around humans, right? And I thought, do you know what? There should also be some companies for them, even in technology. And there are organizations who've literally built like an illustrious history on the back of that. I think Apple to me is the perfect example. I have all sorts of bones to pick with Apple. I would not want to work at Apple. You could not convince me for any amount of money in the world. Um, if Tim Cook came tomorrow and said, here's $100 billion, I'd say like, keep it in the bank, Tim. So I'm not doing that, right? But can, can Tim and the rest of the people over there build a spaceship and plant it somewhere in Silicon Valley and get people to come there without that being like a crime against humanity, without being that like cruel and unusual torture to ask someone to come to a freaking office for eight hours a day. This is the kind of precious bullshit that gives actually remote office advocates a bad rep. When, when they think like, oh, everything has to be open. So it's like everyone has to be remote. Everything has to be remote. Every single company has to be remote. Shut up. Yes. Jesus. Let I them have their damn the, office. I deleted all those people on LinkedIn. I <laughs> I got so tired. And now, granted, I was working at a company where we were telling we had always told people you have to come back into the office. So right. I was, you know, in the crosshairs of a lot of uh, friction. Um, yes. Not that we had, we never told them otherwise. Uh, so which was my thing. That's I just the main think problem. People I should think. be clear. Someday. Like I. I think it's shitty when people, the companies that said, sure, you can be remote, we're going to go remote, and then they changed the deal yes. on their employees. Yes. And I think that is exceptionally yes. no. shitty. I, but I yes. do think, I agree with you that I think that there should be choices and people should yes. make those. And I'm going to tie this into another spicy topic. Um, I got a lot of shit a few weeks ago because I said companies should be able to decide whether or not they want to focus on diversity. And that's their choice. And that you don't, you know, like, and if you do, you should do with the right way with all the right things. And if you don't, then just tell people and let it go. Um, you and Basecamp and 37 Signals, like, famously a few years ago said no politics in the office. Um, and, you know, sort of, I think it sounded like you got a bunch of heat back then at the time. I'd love uh, what do you, your thoughts. What do you thoughts. mean heat? I, I think that's not the right <laughs> term for the hell. <laughs> Of two weeks we well, went through on Twitter depend, and elsewhere. Depends on who you are. Well, too, I mean, you know, thank God yeah. news cycles are short these days. Um, yes. 
Uh, I would love to hear what you have to say. I mean, Kelly and I are probably still licking some wounds from the, uh, from my very clear, like, well, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But that's my company. So that's a choice. And I will tie that into something I heard you say, which I thought was very like interesting. And I'd love you to talk about maybe this layered on to Colleen's question is people are afraid to say what they think. Oh, um, why? What? What is like? You know, I'm sure you don't need more prompting, but maybe those two things together. <laughs> he, he seems to have embraced his, yes, his uh, yes, inner confidence yes. here. I love it. Yeah, I think this is part of when you survive your like 18th cancellation attempt, you don't really fear the 19th. You're like, mm, what are they going to bring this time, right? Like whatever force they bring to the conversation of trying to do that has already been expended, has already been tried, and it didn't work. So that's giving me some confidence. Um, I think, unfortunately, like corporate America just got held ransom for a while by a religious sect that we now know as wokeness. And that religious sect gained incredible power in a way I am still in awe of, because I've dug into the history of the sort of philosophical underpinnings of this. And you can trace the lineage all the way back to the 1920s, if you want, and certainly back to the 1960s. And there's literally the architects of this kind of thinking plotting in public, in writing, in the 60s. Yeah, this is going to take generations. The long march through the institutions, which was one of these um, uh, approaches where, like, you know what? The way we're going to win this battle, going to gain power, is that we're going to infiltrate the universities. It's going to take a few rounds. We're going to start with some professors, and we're going to get those, and they're going to teach some students, and they're going to become professors. And fast forward from 1967, I think Hart Marcuse was writing most of his uh, pivotal papers. 20, what? I don't know what you want to pin it at. Historians are going to pin it. Like 18, 19, whenever things really went nutty. That is an amazing accomplishment that you can literally plot like 50 years in advance and see your plan come to fruition after your death. But it happened. And it was one of those just, I hope, seriously, like both fingers crossed, once in a generation, um, things to go through. Because it was, it was just crazy. It was absolutely crazy, and it undermined just some fundamental, what I thought to be liberal principles. Like, I think of myself as a relatively left-leaning person on a whole host of topics, and I thought I was quite left on a bunch of things. And then I just saw what existed, like, 400 miles left of that, and I went, like, yeah, that's nuts. We're not going to do that, are we? And, like, oh, okay, yeah, we're all doing that now. And if you say anything short of that, like, you will be beheaded on Twitter. And we were. Or at least attempted to. So we, in 2021, April, sort of had enough of this, Jason and I. Like, this was growing, had been growing for a couple of years inside of 37 Signals. Like, just little steps, right? Like, this is all, this all happened slowly, then all of a sudden. And it was happening slowly, and then we got to sort of the all of a sudden point where things were just getting silly. Like, uh, calls for us to vet the political background of customers, for example. You're like, oh, should conservatives even be allowed to buy Basecamp? What? Wait, what? We're having a conversation about this? Like, how is it? Uh, what? And then more and more things just getting crazy and crazy. And Jason, I, at the end, went like, do you know what? The root cause of this is that we've allowed the fallacy of bring your whole self to work to actually manifest in its full spirit. And that spirit is ugly. We should not bring our whole selves to work. That is a... I was about, 
you know what's funny is that even when you're at this point, you're still like, there is a filter and, and there should be, right? This is actually part of this point. Like you're about to say something and you're like, do you know what? I shouldn't say that even in a spicy context here. So I'll just say it like, do you know what? There's a bunch of bad ideas and those bad ideas have been allowed to expand and multiply to the point that even Jason or I kind of couldn't recognize some aspects of the business and the discourse that was going on inside it. And we're, like, we're not doing that. I don't want to do this anymore. It actually got to the point at sort of the pin of it because it's not like we sit inside a base camp at the time we were called base camp. We went back to 37 cycles now with multiple products. But we sit inside this company and we go like, you know, I don't like it anymore. Like, I don't, this is our company. Do I want to work here if I just take the angle we're on and I plot it five years into the future? No, I don't want to work here. Like, I'll plant potatoes. I'll do something else. I don't want to. So that gave us the confidence. You know, do you know what? All right, this is, going to, this is going to be a bit contentious. We knew that, right? Did we know it was going to go freaking super viral? No, we did not. Did we know it was going to be basically borderline national news and all that stuff? No, we did not. But we did have enough confidence, you know what, it's going to ruffle some feathers and maybe it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but I don't want to do this anymore. We're not going to talk politics where we work, right? You can talk politics all you want. I talk politics all the time. Find like-minded people. Politics can be a fun thing to talk about. I think a little less fun maybe in those years, or it could get like uh, not just spicy, but aggravated. Um, but do that. Great. Fine. Not, not at work. Not like where we're trying to coordinate the to-do tasks about the next feature we're building into our project management tool. That's not the space for us to deliberate on the great injustices of society or the historical context of the slave trade or whatever it is. However pertinent and important those issues are to you, don't bring them to work. Exercise your out-of-work self for that. Be an activist. Show up for a march. Do all the things in your spare time. We're only asking you to work 40 hours a week. There should be enough left time left over for you to do that. For one, I, I appreciate the clarity of identity, right? That's something that, again, whether you agree or disagree, it's clarity of what this is and you can make a choice or to your earlier point, go start your own company. But makes total sense. And the headline, can you tell us what did that freaking feel like and look like every fucking day as you went through that? You had people leave the company. You had a business still to run. You had people you wanted to stay. I mean, you have to have some empathy of like, all right, team here. How did you do that? It was without a doubt the hardest, but also most meaningful two weeks of my professional life. For two weeks, Things were, it's funny, we wrote a book like a few years prior called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. For two weeks, it was absolutely bad shit and crazy from morning until past sunset. Absolutely nuts. Um, and the whole thing sort of built in slow motion. There was like a week of crescendo building, then a crescendo, and then a third of the company ended up uh, sort of accepting the buyouts that, that very generous buyouts that, that we gave. And then we were left with a one third of the company whole in the roster of the people who had to operate the business, which was at the time, um, I've started to retract these words. It's funny, again, the filter's working here. I was about to say traumatic. I think that's such a bullshit term. You lose your fucking arm in Iraq, that's traumatic. You have two hard weeks at work because some people quit over a bullshit policy, that's not traumatic. It was difficult, though. It was difficult, and it's funny. I, um, 
I wear this little thing called the Aura Ring, and it tracks your heart rate. And I've been wearing it for, I think, five or six years. I've never seen scores like that out of having the, outside of having the flu or some other like, serious illness. Like I was seeing scores in the 40s. And you know what? I felt like both Jason and I had kind of prepared ourselves for this. I mean, we're students of Stoic philosophy, and like we've been running the business in a certain way. We didn't have anyone to answer to in terms of investors. Like I couldn't even imagine if we also had that to deal with. But it was really difficult. We had two days where we trended on Twitter. I got about 20,000 tweets directed at me calling me a white supremacist and a genocide apologist and like all the stuff you could imagine at the height of the woke nonsense, at the height of everyone is freaking out. Everything is racist all the time if you look the wrong way or if you like two plus two equals four. Um, that <laughs> intensity, like the entire community of everyone who cared about that focused their laser beam on our little company for about two days. Um, and for a week, it was, it was just bananas. But do you know what? This too shall pass. And not only did it pass, it didn't even take that long um, to pass in this sort of grand scheme. It was two very hard weeks. And then the two weeks after that were already like orders of magnitude easier, still like kind of difficult. And then we spent a couple of months rebuilding, if you will. We rehired. And then we thought, to your point, know who you are. And we had actually made the mistake of not being clear about who we were, not being clear about where the guidelines were and what we would tolerate. And we had tolerated way too much bullshit for way too long that in some way I can't even like feel that bad for myself because like we brought it on ourselves. We should have nipped this in the butt really early. Now, most companies also didn't nip it in the butt and they suffered with this for years after we did it. But um, after that, it was crystal crystal clear. We now put in our job openings, there's a paragraph that essentially says, 37 Signals does not take a position on societal political topics. We do not discuss these things during work hours. You're free to have your own political opinions. That's just what it is, right? That was kind of like an antidote for all of this nonsense. We've not had a single employee since even contemplate engaging into any of this. Yeah, well, because it was clear. And I say this a lot for companies when they're going through a layoff or going through a tough time or like one of the companies I was at, our revenue had dropped 70%. It was crazy. We didn't lay people off. We did pay cuts, but we, I just said like, Hey, I will pay you to leave today. Like it is going to suck for, I don't know how many months and we are going to have to do all of these things. And I'm going to take away all these benefits and perks so we can survive as a company and save all these jobs. And I literally was just like, if you want to get off my bus today, get off the bus. Like I'll pay you to leave right now. And it was so much healthier after that. The people who this wasn't for them, they got off the bus and then the bus could move forward. And people also remembered that like we really took care of people at a time that it was really, really hard. And we eventually brought pay back and things got better and turned around. But I, I mean, it's amazing to me how many founders and CEOs are afraid to just be honest and talk about the hard shit and say like, it, even this is like the remote to work, you know, return to office or remote work thing. Like just be honest and like call it out. And then, and I'm like, you're grown adults. You don't have to work here. Get off the bus, go work somewhere else. It's okay. There, there's two sayings I come back to over and over again. One is hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. I, that's sort of just a, 
I always think about that. It was like, oh, this is kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, but we could make the hard choice now, and then we can live easy. Or we can make the easy choice now and push it off, postpone it, not really say what we think. And then we're just going to have a hard life going on. And then the second one is, uh, is the book Radical Candor. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, well, I, uh, we're, we're big Kim Scott fans here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will actually, I will admit, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the full book itself. I thought it was full of a lot of the, the, anecdotes the video, I couldn't the connect online, to. online, the first round but capital, 20-minute video. It's great. That's all you it need. It doesn't even matter because just the dichotomy of radical candor versus ruinous empathy was to me worth 10 book prices. This is one of the things, I could just have read the title and if I truly internalized what it meant, I would have been like, I will pay you $10,000 for this lesson. It is incredible. And I've tried ever since to really go with that because the easy path is always ruinous empathy. Give people a little more time, be a little more vague, don't ruffle any feathers, don't make any... That is the concept that we've internalized now as preciousness and I want to smash it with a baseball bat. This sense of like, uh, uh, no, don't do that. Don't do it. Tell it straight up and maybe it's going to suck for a hot minute. And then people hopefully are going to actually go like, yeah, okay, I don't agree with you on this. This is one of the things we were not as good at in the past as we've gotten is to accept the fact that not everyone is going to like everything. We're going to make some decisions here. We're going to institute some policies. Not everyone is going to like everything. Do you know what? Okay, this is not a democracy. It's a company of 72 people. Most of them are employees. A couple of them are owners. And that's just how it is. If you want to go live in a commune somewhere, awesome. Do that. Like, Get the hippy-dippy hat on and drive into the country. And you will also, by the way, realize the, what is it called? The tyranny of structure. Listness. I think there's this seminal paper from like 1970s essentially about communes and how they always break down because if you don't have an explicit structure, you will get an implicit structure. And those are usually way worse than the explicit ones. Yeah, they, I, I always yeah. say I have friends outside of work. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally. As you get older, you want to hang out with less people, so you don't need more. <laughs> I have friends outside of work. It's fine. Yeah, you don't like fine. me. It's gonna be. It's gonna be just fine. It's already. I fine. had to learn that lesson late. I will say, when I started the business, I thought I could be friends with employees, and it sounds so harsh, and it doesn't mean like that at all. Can I have friendly conversation? Can we have banter? Can we have all these things? Yes, we can. But we can't be friends in the best sense of that word, where we're peers where we're sharing things we have a power relationship and for us to deny that that exists is going to do both of us a disservice and it's going to lead to bad surprises and you're going to feel like i'm a shitty friend when i have to tell you some hard news about your performance or whatever and that's not a good situation so i've just learned to accept you know what here's 72 people and i i can love them dearly and i really appreciate them i can respect them and i collaborate with them but i can't be friends with all of them so I have to find my friends outside of work. That's okay. Yep. Like there's yep. about what seven billion people left when you detract <laughs> the seventy-two who work at the company. There's enough choice here. It doesn't yeah. have to and happen you're, within these walls. You're, you're an introvert. Awesome. You don't you don't need many. You know you're that, fine. That's also true. Um, and I don't and like for, most people as it is. So it, yeah, it all works yeah, out. Yeah, I'm again. surprised you showed up here today. I, I thank yeah. you for showing up. Uh, but friends of founders is a thing in tech, right? The FOFs, the FOFs, like it, it creates weird dynamics too in these companies. Yeah. The friend of founders. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations. But quickly, um, David, you mentioned the wokeness and the religious sect and all these things, and I just want to like demystify this because 
The rest of us, we were not disagreeing that diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, people, all these things that that stands for, we need that. That is undisputed. It's, it's, if I can paraphrase, what you're saying is we've made a mess of it. We believe that the movement that incorporated around those three letters meant the same thing with those words as we thought they meant. That the generally accepted understanding of what diversity means or inclusion means was what DEI stood for. I've come to appreciate that that is literally not true. That the machinery of anti-racism, for example, that the way to combat racism of the past is to commit, if not racism, then at least discrimination in the present, is just a horribly flawed idea. One that launch all sorts of good liberal thinking from Martin Luther King onwards, and that the perversion we got ourselves into was to believe we were talking about the same things when we really weren't. Now, this is also what I think is interesting here, that that explains about two-thirds of the three letters. Equity? I find that one to be the most interesting, because um, when people read equity, they hear equality. And when they hear equality, they think equality of opportunity. That the best candidate who shows up for an interview should get the job regardless of their background, regardless of their sex or gender or other protected attributes, right? That's not what equity means. Equity means we're all going to get the same, right? Or that is the aspiration, that we should be equalizing things in such a way that, like, we're all getting sort of equal shares. What? First of no, all, that's an inherently uh, broken. That's like saying I, when people say, oh, compensation, I was like, compensation's inherently unfair. It is. Yes. It's just, and it's discriminatory it's, in the it's, sense it's, that like there's some people who fair. get different things. Yeah. Um, that's just how it works. Yeah. So I think the whole DI thing got off to the way it did, or, or it was really smart. Again, if you just look at this from Machiavellian tactics, you're like, man, damn it. I, that's going to be written down for years to come. You take a word that everyone like likes diversity, uh, and then you just make it mean something else. Uh, and now suddenly you will have had this weird buy-in where people go like, well, of course I'm for, for diversity and, and so forth. And then it means this whole regime of thinking where you're like, oh, actually, I'm not on board with that, but I've already said I'm for diversity. I can't really be against the movement now. And then we end up in this just really weird weird, weird place that we were in for a couple of years. Now, thankfully, in my analysis, this is all getting unwind. If you look about tech in, in particular, like all the excesses, all the nonsense, like it's just massively and rapidly getting spooled out of organizations. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But you agree with the underlying principles of why of it was important. And that's the, like, that's that, the mind fuck. That, that is the mind fuck. Yeah, that's what that I wanted I to... Yes. And I wanted to demystify, I wanted to, to unpack that because the average Joe that's like might be kind of reading what you're saying or kind of, they might say he's against like, this. Oh, you just want a uh, homogenous, whatever. Yes. What which is not, no. which, you, which is not true because actually I right. looked at your workforce on LinkedIn and it, there are a lot, the faces all looked very different. We're more diverse kind of now. We're more diverse now than where we were before this started. For whatever metric of, of sort of whatever, diverse, if right? you're just looking at different faces and exactly. backgrounds, this looked and like this, people this is, all this is over what, the place. And this is where we ended up in such a bad place where any opposition to a specific set of tactics that got incorporated under the DEI moniker got coded as right wing, white supremacist, all this nonsense where we're like, do you know what? We can have a 
good faith discussion about whether affirmative action is a good policy or bad policy. The Supreme Court has just had an opinion about that, and they've come to one conclusion. I happen to agree with that conclusion, that having quotas or specific um, sort of allocations in that regard is a bad idea. And I don't think in the long run it serves even the people it's trying to assist. And I think we're far better off if we pursue the beautiful vision of content of your character, the colorless thing. Again, that does not mean you're not aware of historic equities or all this stuff. But when you sit down with two candidates, candidate A and candidate B, you must hire the better candidate. The road to hell is paved with all the good intentions that go into letting the worst candidate, if you can so quantify it, get the job because of these other considerations. This is the whole dark end and blind alley of intersectionality, and and people can dig into the whole history of that. Um, But it's just, it can be boiled down to, do you know what? Should the best person get the job? Yes. The best person for your company. For sure, for sure, for the role, yes. Yeah, I talked about this the other day on, you know, we had a diversity person on with Nolan, the the other podcast, and I said, look, I'm not everybody's cookie. And what, what, you know, like, I'm a peanut butter cookie. I'm slightly allergic. You may not want me around in your people. And that's okay, you know, but we need to do a good job, which I like the fact that you have your employee handbook online. I think you're very clear about these things. So when you're looking at candidates, you can say like, hey, I want the best candidate for the work that we need to get done to serve our customers and our framework. End of story. I just wanted to wrap, like, wrap this, David, and bring it up because this is what Colleen and I and David Hanrahan, Nolan, and I talked about, like, I don't know when it was, it feels like 10 years ago, but it's not about agreeing or disagreeing with someone. It, it's like, I think everyone takes these things at surface level and they make assumptions and they jump to conclusions and David's bad and David's this, but like, I asked you four more questions underneath it and it was comp- like, you learn so much and half the battle around, I think, making progress on this, which we have to, we have to become a better fucking world. Like we have to, is actually taking the fucking time to understand and have these conversations, again, be afraid, people are afraid to say what they think. You don't have to agree with the person, but you learn. Maybe they learn something. Like stuff starts to mix up. You become more educated. You might change your outlook. You just said you changed your outlook over the years. And we're not having these conversations. I bet there's 20,000 people on X that rather call you an asshole supremacist than maybe sit down and listen and peel it back, and they might walk away thinking something different. And that's just... It's humans, right? It's how we generalize. It's how we make sense of the world. And and we go crazy. This is, I forget who did the quote. Like, uh, I think it was uh, Nietzsche, something like, insanity is quite rare in the individual, but it is the common form in in mobs or, or in classes of people, in groups of people. Um, and I think we just went insane for a hot minute. And it, what's actually interesting about that insanity is that you look back through history, humans go insane all the time as groups. Like, they go just nuts. And we look back on that and we go like, that was nuts. I guarantee you, we will look back on the era, especially 2020 to 2022 in like five minutes from now and go, that was nuts. In the same way that people can look back at 
other periods of time where you go like, how could people even think like that? Yet, you know what? This is what we're liable to do. We're liable to get into this mob behavior. Social media has turbocharged it in all sorts of really ugly ways. Um, I think particular strains of, uh, of social media can do worse than others. I think the past regime that ran Twitter did the absolute worst job ever. Um, this is a whole other spicy conversation about uh, X and Twitter and, and whatever. And it's not like I'm going to convince anybody about like what their opinions on say Elon Musk is like right you might as well talk about Trump like you're never going to dig anyone out of whatever ditch they got themselves into on either side or no side that's just like unapproachable territory so let's not even get into that everything <laughs> fucking boils down to people though like this is yep. why like we wanted you like everything fucking boils down to people and communication and they're all like, crazy it, and they're, they're all crazy. Including they're all other, weird. That other CTO <laughs> I worked with was right. Code is easy. People are hard. I That's like, right. I, I right. have one Scott more Dale. question. Yes. I, Scott Dale. I have one That's more his question. Name, Scott Dale. <laughs> <laughs> One more question, and Colleen, if you do after, that's cool. If not, I know we're at time. I, I would just love, David, your hot take, because I know you're going to give it straight, on HR people. Like, do you like them? Do you hate them? Does it depend? What do you think? What should we be doing? Like, I I'd love to hear your take on the HR profession and those that you've worked with and just all of it. One of my favorite people of all time at uh, 37 Signals um, is Andrea, who's our head of people, who's our chief HR person, who I have the most tremendous respect for, and it's only growing over the years. I started out in a very prototypical young 20s buck programmer who'd worked at some companies and thought all HR policies were stupid, right? So that's the offset. I think that's almost like the default. If you're a programmer, you're like, oh, this is stupid. And then you go through a few things, and you learn a few things, and you realize, you know what? Oh, there's some reasons for some of these mechanisms. Again, does that excuse everything? No, it does not. Um, the key thing I remember seeing, whenever there's layoffs usually, they go like, HR is not your friend. They're there to protect the company. Yeah, duh. What do you think? Of course they are. What, what, what do you think? That the company would just hire a whole cadre of people to like be adversaries to them? Like if you, again, the clarity, right? HR is there to protect the company. That's a good thing. The company's worth protecting. If the company freaking falls apart, there will be no paycheck for anyone. So there should be people who protect the company, who protect them against lawsuits, who protect them against um, whatever, all this hardship that can come in when people are being weirdos like they usually are, right? Now, again, can that get into stereotypical weird stuff? Yes, it can, but that stereotypical weird stuff is usually a consequence of just bureaucracies. Companies get large enough. They have to have policies for everything. You can't just do the reasonable thing. That's just how these things work. That's the only way to scale them. Um, we don't have that, right? Like we're small companies so we can do small company things. I think where people get a bad impression of HR is when they have a small company run with HR people who think they're running a big company. That's when things really go sour, right? You're like, oh, here's 400 forms to fill out something for a, what an expense support. Now, obviously, oftentimes HR is just a henchman for whatever executives want, right? They're like, we're just here to execute the decree from above. You may hate us all you want. And in fact, in part, that's the function. The function is for HR to be a sponge, a filter, a shock absorber. Because you know what? Most founders are terminally unsuited to deal with the weirdness of people. And if they do not have an HR department, fireworks are going to set off every five minutes and you can't run a company like that. 
It's just going to explode. And this is why I appreciate Andrea at our company so much, because I know what my gut reaction is in a lot of situations. It's not helpful. I'm not helpful. Like, I need, like, a more helpful human to filter things so I can say stupid shit in private, and then that person can sit and nod and say, uh-huh, uh-huh, I, I see why you think that. Let's put it a little more delicately. We're not going to say that Let's today. Let's put it a little nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know you're just not going to say that today. Yeah. Awareness is the first step. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awareness yeah. is yes. the first I, step. I mean, I, I always say that. my okay. HR philosophy is we say yes unless it's illegal or stupid, and stupid has a very long runway, is what I generally say. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. DHH, you yeah, strike me as a, people for um, yourself. Um, a guy who would might like Larry David and curb your enthusiasm. Is that a <laughs> correct assessment? Uh, it, yeah, I, I, I do think that's, that's quite apt. Now, what's funny with me is like, I have like almost two processes running, right? I have a main thread that's just saying whatever comes into my head and a lot of it is like blunt, spicy or stupid. And then I have like a secondary process that like observes that and say like, that was kind of stupid. And I feel like the HR mm, advantage that we have is like, you take that secondary process and you make it the main process. So you still run through your things and you go through all your emotions and you go like, oh, this is, this employee is being an ungrateful Bastard, right? And then you go like, oh, and the process go like, but would it help the situation if you told the employee that they're being an ungrateful bastard? Hmm. No, it would not. So let's not pass on that information. It's, it becomes like a firewall. That's a good way of thinking. It's like a two-way firewall, right? Because what's also helpful, at least for me, is like I've called a lot of bosses I've had total idiots. I've called them assholes. I've called them idiots. I've called them all sorts of things that if I called them that to their face, like I wouldn't have had the job for very long, right? And it would have been a bad idea. And like, how can you work productively with someone you call an asshole? So to have a firewall, you have a, a willing ear who can sit and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then just go like, yeah, I'm not going to pass any of this shit off on at all. I'm going to pass on about like five minutes out of our one hour conversation, but you got that shit off your chest. That's a function. Now, again, it can get, take overhand and I have a whole line of thinking on like oh. whether HR people should be therapists or not. And, and my argument is generally that. no. Um, but just there's a, a great utility in that kind of firewalling. And I've not come to appreciate it nearly as much as uh, having gone through a few hard times, right? Yeah. You're like, yeah. why do we need these life boats on the boat like it's clear sailing forever and then you go through a storm or you hit a fucking iceberg and you go like ooh lifeboats really good idea we should we should have those every boat should have those yeah. <laughs> or sometimes they can even have you fucking avoid yeah, the iceberg even better which is really even cool. better <laughs> even better yes we we should we uh, should wrap up, anything but else I, I must say i would love a whole other podcast on your racing career <laughs> i mean Doing the 24 hour at Le Mans. I mean, that is. Yeah, that's fun. I can't even begin to imagine the mental and physical toll that that takes. So that, I mean, that's actually even more impressive to me. So that, that's awesome. It's, it's good to have hobbies. I'll say, say for, for that. And I wish more founders, I wish we somehow made that cool. Now, what's so interesting to me is, is, we briefly uh, hinted at this discussion about dress codes, right? Like, oh, every tech founder now wears the same, here I am in a shitty t-shirt, right? That's fucking five years old and I look like a slob. And we've like, we made that like the normal thing, right? And I look back at like, oh, I wonder if they had a good idea back in the 80s when everyone wore a goddamn suit. And not only did they wear a goddamn suit, they also had the cultural value that taking Fridays off to golf, like was good. 
And they should totally just do that, right? That there was a value back once upon a time that the way you were a powerful executive was you worked as little as possible. Now we've totally flipped that, that the most powerful executives cannot stop bragging about how much work that they put in. Elon is obviously a terminal case. Oh, I'm sleeping on the floor. You're under the factory, whatever, right? Marissa Mayer goes like, I work 120 hours and like I have to be strategic with my bathroom breaks. And you go like, how did we get from the early 80s of cool cats in suits who went off to golf all the time or just sat at their desk reading the newspaper. And like, I think we should get back to the 80s a little bit. I think about that with a lot of things. I think the 80s is the coolest decade of all time. Well, Colleen's a baller going to Vegas right now. So she's she's kind of playing the she's in. You, 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 We should have some of that because it's a good outlet. I think it's interesting. People go crazy. If all they think about all the time is work, they become bad at work. That's what I think. I love that. And by the way, we're going to use this. That was incredible. You both, I very much appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was really fun. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.